What's going on, guys? Adam Comero here, host of the Duke Basketball Corner podcast with a super quick cold open. This pod was supposed to be recorded a few times uh, earlier in the week, but unfortunately life happens. And while both of Duke's wins since I recorded the last app were huge, North Carolina really has uh, Duke North Carolina's locked down a spot in the all-time list. I mean, it was an epic epic game and rather than add on more FSU thoughts Florida State thoughts at kind of the end of uh, the the recording I did like I kind of mentioned a bunch of times that I was going to during the recording I think it's actually best to just leave this episode alone as a DBC deep dive of the Duke North Carolina game and if you haven't ever heard one of my deep dives it just covers everything it covers the historical context analysis opinions everything except i did realize after the recording i kind of forgot actually uh maybe unconsciously uh, for garrison brooks he did make a heck of a block on cassius at the end of regulation which i genuinely did forget to mention so that's my bad but i feel like you'll get plenty from this episode which you won't get anywhere else about this game and same as same as every episode same as every season so first of two reminders Again, I'm taking emails for potential long-term co-hosts. That's the way this pod is going to survive and thrive with a long-term co-host. In the meantime, just whoever wants to spend an episode hanging out with me on the pod for the rest of this season, uh, because in order for me to record, i got to have someone with me. Otherwise, it ain't going to happen. So email DukeBasketballCorner at Gmail if you're interested. Again, DukeBasketballCorner at Gmail. You can be as involved as you want to be. Or simply act as a soundboard. I can work with anything and anyone. Uh, Second of two reminders. Rate and review. Duke is the most popular college basketball team in the country. And this podcast is the best Duke basketball podcast there is. Best really Duke coverage platform of any kind. Nothing else comes close. And I'm confident in saying that at this point. I know everything else that exists out there. So get the word out because Duke deserves the best in my opinion. And the general Duke coverage is far from it, and this is what could exist on a much more consistent and frequent basis for a major platform to pick it up and make it more widespread. But you got to get it on that kind of radar, and I need the help for that. So please rate and review. So that's basically all I got to say. So enjoy the uh, Duke North Carolina deep dive on what was a heck of a game coming out a little later i'm sure plenty of coverage already exists but you know what i think uh you guys won't mind hearing just a little bit more about uh this game and the deep dive i always make to kind of be a lasting sort of episode so you can listen to it at any time and i think it definitely fits the bill here well i do talk a lot about uh the the current players and kind of the strategy uh, as well as mentioning Florida State a couple of times, I do think still the information given about Duke, North Carolina, the game, I think it, uh, it, it'll stand the test of time. So, appreciate you listening, and enjoy. Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Comro joined today by Andrew Clark. And this is a little bit later for, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a recap. I'm actually treating this like a deep dive of one of the most exciting 
Duke Carolina games. They're one of the most exciting Duke games ever. One of the most exciting college basketball games, at least in terms of the two of two plays that'll just go down in history. And that deserves really informative and not just kind of flowery stuff that I've seen I've seen a lot of that written and I want to go into it. I want to almost treat this like a deep dive and go and go through all the context. So we're recording this on a Thursday morning. And I'm just going to bolt for work uh, sometime after an hour. So I might talk about Florida State myself. But, I mean, just because of how remarkable what occurred in the UNC game uh, was, I think that deserves absolutely, I mean, no disrespect to Florida State, but the majority. Andrew, thanks for joining me so much. And... We can talk about the overall game, but when it comes down to history, people are going to remember two plays. So Trey's um, missed free throw on purpose at the end of regulation. Wendell Moore's eventual follow-off, Trey's air ball, off another miss, which wasn't intentional, in overtime to win the game. So uh, what stood out more to you? Just what stood out overall? What are your feelings about how this Duke-UNC game occurred? Um, as far as what one stood out more to me, I'd say the Trey Jones play. Um, there's a little more shock value when it's a do or die situation, right? Uh, the Wendell Moore play happens when the game's tied, but Trey Jones, I mean, if he misses that game's over, we lose to Carolina. It's, it's a painful night. Um, but, and then also just that play was just pretty. I mean, you can't ask for a better play bouncing the ball off the rim like that. It came back perfectly. I mean, he almost got the ball stripped, but he got, he got the dribble into the key and pulls up and just drains that. It was just, I was just in awe. I mean, can't ask for a better ending to regulation than that. So you mean the one thing you won't remember the game for is uh, the fact that their jerseys look like what would happen if the equipment manager basically forgot to pack the real jerseys and they were all forced to wear backups from like the local high school team. No, I think that, I think that got forgotten about in the, in the midst of the, all that. Dude, they need to stop with the jerseys. I mean, I, I know they appreciate the history and all that stuff, but enough. I mean, they're down to like, they're, they're just going to be wearing like Hawaiian shirts by, by next game. And Nike's going to make billions off it because Hey, that's the NCAA for you. Anyway. All right. So, the interesting thing was before the game, I mean, I'm always just looking through random stats, seeing what I find interesting. I don't know. There, there's, there's one thing that I haven't actually mentioned, I don't feel like, on the pod really ever. But if Wendell hadn't made that follow to win the game, we were we were heading to double overtime. And do you know what uh, Coach K's record is in double overtime? I can't say I do. 0-3. So it's interesting. I mean, let's see. It was uh, 1981, the first game of the season to Vanderbilt. Uh, they lost 76-75. That was at uh, Cameron Endor. Then there was uh, actually 1984 at uh, UNC. They lost 96-83 when UNC scored the last 12. So that's brutal right there. And then you have 2003 at Wake Forest. They lost 94-80. So kind of like UNC where they just got blown out in the second overtime they was actually they got outscored twenty to six in the second overtime. Wake started on a twelve one run. I kind of forgot who played for Wake at that point. I was thinking like, oh, it's going to be Chris Paul or it's going to be Josh Howard. Josh Howard was a freshman, but Wake's leading scorer in that game 
was Vitas Danilus. So that was that was that was a surprise. But uh, yeah, Kay hasn't had quite the the success. And I mean, it's when you have three over the span of forty years. Obviously, that goes beyond small sample. And also, there was two others. Interestingly, both in the same year, nineteen ninety five, both with Pete Gaudet coaching. So Duke did lose two others, including. The Jeff Capel play, which many remember against UNC when he sent that into double overtime. So they lost to UNC 102-100 there, and uh, they also lost to Virginia 91-88. Those were two weeks apart. That's pretty brutal. Lose two two games two weeks apart, double overtime. Pete Gaudet was coaching Duke both of those times. Much love to him. Yeah, it it was going to be interesting. It would have been something that you haven't seen. You haven't seen Duke win a double overtime game, but do you – can you guess uh, his record in triple overtime? Um, I don't know. I'll just take a shot in the dark. Something like 1-0 and or something? You are exactly right. 1-0. and So that was actually, again, an early game that was 1982, uh, 73-72 versus Clemson. So, I mean, with these kind of epically long games, there's really only been one that uh, he's coached since 1991. That was the 2003 game. And it's interesting. I looked at the Duke site, had it listed as uh, Jonathan Reddick and um, what is it? Uh, oh, I forget, I forget the um, what's the guy's name. Uh, I don't know. So some other player was listed with a name that like surprised me because it's uh, not ever what he actually is called. I'll have to go back and, and look to that as I keep rolling on. But it's but it's interesting how has the uh, actual like born names. With this game, it's interesting how Duke and UNC have only played four times on February 8th on Chapel Hill. The first was Duke winning in 1958, and the third was a, an 82-78 to 78 loss in 2018. The second, though, was eight years prior to last Saturday's game, and is what I would really assume most Duke fans and college basketball fans in general consider the second biggest shot in Duke history, or at least in the K era. I mean, I went through all kind of the game winners um, on a deep dive over the summer, and I would really say there's only two others that could possibly compare, and one of them is just kind of because of the shock factor. The only one that's really truly in the running is Leitner 1990 versus UConn from the left elbow, and the thing that makes uh, one thing you talked about in terms of how well, actually, no, the, uh, you said uh, Trey's uh, shot in regulation because they would have lost. Yeah, I think that's the thing with Leitner. Both his, obviously, the Kentucky is number one, and UConn is they were down one in both of those games. So if he doesn't make that, they're, they're done. And that's what makes it extra remarkable and adds that extra factor. It wasn't to break a tie. It wasn't to send the game into, into OT even. I mean, both really legit sent Duke to the Final Four. It's tough to beat, but the UConn shot, I don't feel like it really had the same cinematic vibe as kind of the Kentucky shot or Austin Rivers. And what does that mean? I don't know. It's kind of tough to explain, but I would say anyone who just watched the Austin Rivers shot again, the whole play as it develops, watch the Kentucky play, and then watch the UConn play. It's tough to fully explain, but I think when you or whoever watches it, I think it kind of, you'll get it. And uh, before we move on, the other... What the other shot that I was talking about with the shock factor was uh, Sean Dockery versus Virginia Tech, and that's literally the only time I've ever lost control of my emotions from watching sports. I absolutely lost my mind because it was it was just completely out of nowhere and unexpected. And I, I don't I wasn't old enough to remember even if I watched. 
the Yukon and the UK shots live? I would guess probably not. And I still say to this day, you can kind of feel the Austin River shot coming. It almost it was really odd. They, they it almost had an air of inevitability. And it's crazy to say, and it's also easy to say after the fact. So whoever questions it could ask uh, one of my good friends growing up if it's true. He is a UNC grad. I actually had him on in 2015. I referred to him as UNC Josh. Uh, but I doubt he wants to live that out again. <laughs> so uh, where I forced him to describe what it was like to attend UNC during the worst four-year run pretty much ever in their history, 2001 through 2004. It was uh, 2001. They, they actually went 26-7. and seven. ACC final got trounced by Duke, 1-2 and two versus Duke on the season, 2-seed lost to 7-seed Penn State, and that was pretty much the highlight. Next year, 8-20, 0-3 versus Duke. I was uh, I, I was talking to Ray, who I said I had hoped to record this podcast with, um, and much respect to you, Andrew. Thank you for doing this. Ray, he kind of got eaten alive by his work schedule, and hopefully I will be recording with Ray soon. Um, and we were kind of just talking the other day, going over some history in terms of, like, is it even possible for Duke and UNC to play two straight games again? Because that's what happened in 2002. They played the regular season final, and then they played again the ACC tournament, because UNC was garbage and they, they got matched up that way, but that was before the uh, the conference expanded. And now with the buys, I don't know. I, I feel like both of them would almost neither of them would be able to have a buy. They would actually both probably have to be having a down year, and it's just I I don't see much chance of that happening. So that might be the last time. They uh, play two games in a row, but yeah, so uh, they were garbage. 2003, 19, and 13, third round loss in the NIT or Sweet 16 or whatever it's called in the NIT. ACC uh, semifinal loss to Duke, one and two versus Duke. In 2004, 19, and 11, six seed second round loss to Texas. ACC quarterfinal loss to Georgia Tech and 0 and 2 against Duke. So yeah, I mean, I always find that amusing. How I mean, these are these are two teams, Duke and North Carolina who has some of the most storied recent history you can imagine. And he, he somehow got the four worst years ever. I remember actually I went there. And I think uh, I think I went there for Georgia Tech and Chris Bosch had like a game winner. And the Deem Dome was, uh, it, it, the crowd went mild. So as I discussed along with the rest of, I assume, everyone everywhere, Duke and UNC, and I'm talking about kind of before the game, going over the Syracuse and Boston College for that pod, they were tied at 50, 50 games each. This was the 100th anniversary before the game, as well as being tied in exactly the same amount of points. So now it has changed. Duke is up 51 to 50 and up by two points. Duke is 48 and 46 against UNC in the Coach K era, with his record specifically having two less losses for uh, uh, 48 and 44 because of uh, peak out at how K had to. Um, take it easy that season and step down for back surgery versus Dean Dean Smith 14 and and 24 again Duke was technically 14 and 26 kind of runs there he started out one and eight then went 12 and 10 and then one and six and Duke overall one and eight so kind of that the end of that was when kind of he was starting to get Duke back in the mid mid to uh mid-90s and then 96, 97. They were just starting to get back, and then Dean retired after 96, 97. So he kind of retired when Duke was at its uh, on his down period. So Bill Guthridge, 90, 97, 98 through 99, 2000. Eight games, a 6-2 and two record. Started off 1-2 and two and then 5-0. And, oh. and Matt Doherty, 
I'll say the 2001 season through the 2003 season, nine games, seven and two record. Kind of lost the first game, then six and zero, oh, then one and one. Plenty of success versus Guthridge and Doherty, and now the Rory era. 37 games, a 21 and 16 record, and uh, Duke has outscored UNC now. 2,764 to 2,747, that's again versus Roy, plus 19 points. In 37 games, 19 points. It's an average of almost exactly a half point a game. I mean, it just goes to show you how wild is that. That even includes games like the 82 to 50 game in 2010. How how do you feel their record is um, at uh, Cameron? How many games up, even, or down, if you had to take a guess, Andrew? Um say about even but i don't know close nine and seven at cameron duke is up nine and seven again this is the roy era how about the dean dome um probably probably down duke is up nine to eight how about the acc tournament i would think duke is up at the ac tournament three and one so they've got they got the triple crown right now they are up at cis uh, Cameron, 9-7, nine, nine Dean Dome, 9-8, and ACC Tournament. Duke is up 3-1. So he's got uh, the trifecta right now. K is 5-2 and two versus UNC in overtime games. And this is the most. And uh, Saturday was the most points Duke scored uh, in Chapel Hill under K, second most in history behind 104 in 1964. So couldn't quite beat that 1964 team, which uh, I'm sure I'll break down something. I have no idea who was on that team. But anyway. So we're talking about, I mean, just like ranking this. Before we get into specifics, just going over some of the classic, in terms of if you were going to make a top three, I'm going to I'm going to quickly run down some of these games and stop me if you if you want to uh, put one in your top three. And I don't care, you can have more than one. It's just fun to kind of go over this, and these are just under K. And I'll be honest, I probably left a couple out during the 80s where I don't quite know all the specifics. I mean, some of them I'm sure were great, but I don't know enough of the specifics where, I mean, if it wasn't like a buzzer beater, I'm not quite sure. 81, Gene Banks buzzer beaters send to OT. Duke wins by one in overtime. 1984, a double OT loss, as I mentioned before. Yeah, that, that was a rough one, but from what I've heard, it's uh, that was definitely a classic. Uh, 1984, this was the game, I feel like, just based on history, seemed to really, really kind of enter Coach K into, an, into a different uh, stratosphere. He had just lost that double overtime game. So now the ACC tournament final, UNC went 14-0 and in the regular season. This was when the ACC was just dominant. And Duke takes North Carolina, and uh, they win the ACC tournament. So they beat an undefeated regular season North Carolina team. And I feel like that kind of vaulted him into a different level with the Dawkins recruiting class and all that. Uh, so then we have 1989, 77-74 ACC tournament. I've, I've, I've watched some of that on YouTube. It was uh, it was very in- it was a very interesting crowd. I will say, if anyone knows about the J.R. Reed sign, yeah, there was that going on. It was tons of fouls. It was intense. I'll say that. So even though 77-74, I think the environment was crazy there. 1992, uh, February 5th. Eric Montross just bleeding down his face. The UNC took that one 75-73. Bobby Hurley broke his foot and kept playing. I mean, tough, tough dude. And I think he actually, he, uh, Duke lost the next game to Wake Forest, and Hurley kept playing there before he kind of had to take a couple games off. 
because, hey, his foot's broken. Um, so then we have February 5th, 95, the cable game I talked about. Or not the cable game, but the cable shot, uh, 10200. 1996, January, 1, January 31st, 1996, there was a Dante Calabria tip. I haven't heard that name in a while, and a Ricky Price miss. So Duke had a chance at the end, just couldn't do it. And here's where I start getting where everything kind of falls back into memory. All right, so 98, Elton Brand comes back from his broken foot. They're down 17 with 12 minutes left, and uh, they come back. Ed Coda, he misses the first purposely. Um... No, I'm sorry. He missed the first, and then he purposely misses the second. And Haywood rebounds. Then he misses both. I, I mean, that was just – it was in, it was. In, I might have actually put – just the intensity of that game was wild. All right, so 2004, February 4th, 2004, 83-81 Duke, overtime, Duhon coast-to-coast with 6.5 left. And then I think that's what most people remember, and then it kind of – everyone forgets the rest – JJ, under the radar defensive transition closeout in Jawad Williams. That was, that was great. I think Jawad, either JJ got a piece or Jawad shot an air ball. But uh, yeah, the Duhon coast to coast, that was impressive. March 6, 2004, another, like this is crazy. JJ hustle play for the steal on defense. Duke takes it 70 65. 2010, 82 to 50, just because. Uh, 2011. Um, you got uh, the 79-73, 14-point comeback. That was just an incredible effort by Seth Curry. Seth Curry, really, he was fantastic that game. Everyone remembers the pictures of Kyrie Irving kind of waving the towel on the sideline. 2012, Rivers, enough, enough said there. Uh, February 18th, yeah, that... you got that one? Not surprising. Uh, February yeah, 18th, yeah. 2015, down 10 with four minutes left. But even more impressive, down seven with a minute 40 left, and then you got Tyus doing his thing, getting the nickname Stones, going on a run, tying the game. Overtime was pretty gross, but uh, Duke won. But, I mean, it's uh, an eerie resemblance to uh, Saturday, would you say? Yeah, I was just going to say, that's another one that stuck out to me. I just remember that takeover from Tyus. That was was phenomenal. Just see every time we needed a bucket, he just went and got one. Tyus had a habit of doing that and making my head explode by basically just doing nothing, standing around all game. Then it's almost like uh, race car. I don't know anything about race car driving, but, like, they wave the flag and all of a sudden, like, they go. It's almost like K's, like, go. You know what? I've always compared it to Rocky Four, where uh, they tell Ivan Drago, the Russian fighter, it's like, okay, start fighting now, and not good things happen to Apollo Creed. Not good things. Um. So, anyway, February 17th. 2016, Derek Thornton blocks Joel Berry. And basically, Duke was playing with like five dudes because Matt Jones got injured that game. I mean, it's funny because you talk about like eight is enough the year before. They're playing like five guys. Uh, 2017, crazy intense game. See, the, I don't think the um, the final score really shows how good it was. Uh, the ACC tournament final. Um no, I'm sorry. That was an ACC tournament semifinal because they beat Notre Dame in the final. But Grayson, that was when he was kind of for, being forced to adjust to a new role off the bench. He hit a bunch of first-half threes. You got my boy Frankie Buckets making big plays. Luke Kennard, huge plays. And and that's when Harry Giles had the alley-oop that made everyone think, like, ooh, if he can actually be healthy, man, the sky's the limit. Unfortunately, he's had his struggles getting uh, staying healthy in the NBA. He's actually been healthy for about two months now with the Kings, so fingers crossed he can stay healthy. But then, of course, uh, Jason Tatum just doing alpha things right there. So that was that, that was uh, one that, I don't know, it's just one of my favorites. It might not fit 
necessarily in with the kind of epic photo finishes, but I love that game. You got uh, last year Zion game winner versus UNC, and then uh, kind of holding your breath while UNC missed a bunch of threes, and then Saturday. So, I mean, those are some of the ones that stuck out and just kind of wherever Saturday fits into uh, into a list, that's everyone's personal opinion to decide. I, I would still say, I mean, the river shot, it's it's tough to beat that. But this one, it it can't be that far behind. And it's it's it kind of annoys me a bit. Not annoys, that's probably the wrong word. But just in terms of everyone like, only thinks about the finish, where some games are great. But I understand it. And at the same time, I probably agree with it in terms of something like Saturday, where it was a bit rough at times. I mean, individually and team-wise, but... I mean, those two plays, you just can't beat them. The foul or don't foul debate, up three. That is alive once again, and uh, alive and very active on the social medias. So UNC fouled Trey with 4.4 left, even before he crossed the half-court line, which was too early, really. no, That's not even a pain. That's too early, no matter what anyone thinks of the foul or don't foul debate. But uh, in Roy's first season coaching Kansas, he didn't foul and Kansas State hit a tying three, and he vowed to always foul and communicate that to players for the rest of his career. And then he forgot to do that earlier this season against Clemson. And Amir Sims hit a three, which sent the game into OT, and ended Carolina's 59-game home win streak against Clemson. So I don't know this for sure, but I would guess he was very vocal about uh, telling uh, Carolina to make sure to foul um, whoever has the ball would probably would end up Trey. I just think uh, it was very early. That's not that's not even I think that's just it was too early. I mean, at least wait for him to cross the line. Would you say uh, statistically, what's what's better, fouling up three, not fouling, or do you think it's about even? Um, it, I would say it's probably about even. I I would tend to think foul. But, yeah, I would think it would be around even. I would say, uh, yeah, that that's pretty much a good answer. Because I think when, when anyone can kind of take a step away and really rationally think about how hard it is to hit that shot, yeah, it probably does end up, end up about even. But at the same time, I think many of us would like to foul because when if you don't and then the shot goes in, it, it stands out so much more. You're always going to think, oh, I should have fouled and then – I think it kind of – it just stands out and makes you wonder what if. But so Ken, Prom, Ken Pomeroy, he did a study a couple years ago, and he studied 676 cases in which a team was up three with five to 12 seconds left. And also Jordan Sperber, after Duke, after Duke Carolina, Jordan's awesome, had him on the pod twice last year, really good with the analytics. He did a video about – it's about 10 minutes, and he does a great job explaining – um, Ken's uh, study, so I'm kind of rehashing that a bit, but I would definitely recommend to watch Jordan's video. So uh, 70, 676 cases in which a team was up three which with 5 to 12 seconds left. The team on offense shot 16% on three-point field goals. Not 60, 16%. And the defending team won the game 93.5% of the time. So if you play defense straight up, the, the chances are that it might be the way to go, but kind of as I was saying before, and it felt like since you chose, you said you would foul. 
it's just like if it doesn't work, it's it's just such a brutal feeling, I would imagine. So that might be why Purdue actually they fouled last season against UVA and they lost when Ty Jerome made the first, missed the second on purpose, and then uh, Diakite tapped out to Kihai Clark, went back to Diakite, who made the last second shot. I feel like most have uh, seen to send the game into OT, and hey, that's not your national champion, Virginia Cavaliers or, or who's if uh, that doesn't happen. You never know how it's going to do. But at the same time, it is tough to compare end-of-game possessions to regular in-game possessions no matter what. I mean, teams just play different, both on offense and defense, and that's just how it is because guess what? Players are human beings, and pressure makes diamonds or bust pipes or whatever they say, whoever they are. So there's been a discussion. Some people think this is cheap. Some people think, hey, you know what? They haven't uh, figured out something to stop it, so why not try to work this system? Would you would you ever try to work the system by committing lane violations unless uh, until the shooter made the free throw? Um, that's not something. I, yeah, I don't know. That it's probably not something I would do, but that's it's definitely an interesting theory. I don't know. I mean, it could work. I mean, and if both, but the the thing is, if both teams commit a violation, like that's the way to stop it. But then the possession goes to the team with the arrow. And guess who had the arrow for Duke UNC? Duke. It's just it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, it hasn't happened much because I do think, even though technically, it I guess it's allowed. I mean, I, I think like reps have the ability to call foul if like it comes to a complete standstill or something. I'm not sure about that rule. Don't quote me on that. But it is a very odd thing that that you can just kind of keep stepping in if you want, and it'll be like a never-ending basketball game, which I'm sure everyone would enjoy watching. That sounds like a boatload of fun. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's hope as fans that that happens every time in that situation. Then, 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 then they would have the live betting on to see how many times it would happen. That would be interesting. So uh, <laughs> two real quick things before we talk about the craziness. Here's another ridiculous rule. How is there a rule where the opposing coach still gets to pick who shoots the free throw if a player on your team is injured and can't shoot? I mean, that's our Armando back got at 431 of overtime, and it helped Duke. And so obviously I should be happy about that. But you know what? At the same time, as a basketball fan, as someone who just wants it to be here, like, are you kidding me? Like, if it has to be someone on the court, then just, like, I don't know. I just, that, that can't happen. That can't, I mean, no. at least let Roy maybe pick somebody off the bench or something. But it's just, that's, that's, that's something from, like, the 1940s, it feels. Yeah, my only thing is I don't know if there's another great solution that would prevent players from intentionally intentionally pretending to be fouled just so that a better shooter could shoot. Um, the only thing is maybe if they could somehow choose the shooter on the court that's just closest in percentage from the free throw line, but I don't know how that would work. Like refs just pulling up stats mid game, but I don't know. There's not there's not a fantastic solution to that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing would be, like, if it really feels like someone's faking, I guess they're not allowed to come in for a certain amount of time. But then it gets subjective, and then, I mean, then it becomes, like, almost like, I I'm, I, I don't know what I'm talking about with soccer. I'm not pretending to, but it almost becomes, like, flopping in soccer and almost, like, NBA at times. Um, all right, so another question. In your opinion, foul on Wendell Moore or no foul on Wendell Moore? And I, I feel like uh, you probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. Um I'd lean towards a foul on him. Um, I don't think it's as black and white as a lot of anti-Duke people seem to. Um, of course, that's going to happen, but 
it's it's a hard call to make in real time but yeah i would i would lean towards having watched it hundreds and hundreds of times it seems like i would lean towards it being a foul on Wendell Moore. yeah i mean when you see the violent reaction or not a violent reaction but just kind of the collision and when Wendell he that's a strong dude and also he has a tendency to lead to lead with his shoulder no matter what and it's eventually like that's something he actually got called on i remember Stephen f austin he does that a lot and i feel like He's going to get called on that more as the refs learn some of uh, his tendencies more. But uh, he needs to watch out for that. But who, who was the – actually, I kind of forget. Was that Playtech? I think it was Playtech, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's another that's another uh, context thing that's like people act like all of a sudden Playtech's going to go and just he's guaranteed to make two free throws if they call that foul. But, yeah, obviously that's not – that's no guarantee. Um, yeah, I mean, play. Well, I think he shoots like 55%. That was far from a guarantee, and I'll talk about that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would call that a foul on Wendell Moore. You got to allow a guy to – I mean, there was – I mean, when you look at the angle and where they're going, to say they both have a right for the ball, look at the angle and who's there. And But at the same time, Playtech's a lot smaller, so it's going to look worse when they collide. But I would still say you can't let that go. If you don't, if you don't make a call on that, that's almost worse. And if you're going to have to make a call, that's on more. Trey, regulation free throws. So here we go. As the legend, which somehow is already a legend just a few days after it occurring, as it goes, he practiced with John Shire, someone who witnessed another hot topic controversial missed free throw in 2010 by Brian Zubek, which, to be honest, could have gone down as one of the most talked about calls ever in terms of Kay telling him to miss if Gordon Hayward's shot had just gone a tiny bit different. Though, pretty much with everything in sports and life in itself, you can kind of coulda, woulda, shoulda, to infinite aspects. But at the same time, oof, that was close. Here's what I want, and it's going to be around soon, and it's going to, I wish I could see it now. So here's what I want provided, and it's super frustrating, because like I said, I know it's going to exist very soon with all the cameras. I mean, with Duke, I mean, they spend like a billion dollars to have every angle on everything, so I know it's there. I want a slow-mo magnification on Trey's miss at the end of regulation. I want to see how he's actually holding the ball. I want to see the initial spin he puts on it. I don't know. This is just me. As someone who used to professionally coach tennis, it looked like there was legit topspin on the ball. Topspin means it's spinning forward. So as it hits the rim, it can it kind of can uh, it spin off, and that could be could be part of why it went up also the angle Trey used was unbelievable I mean there were so many different aspects of it to like what the hell which like just almost can't be repeated but at the same time it looked like there's some spin and I would love to see an angle of that to uh not an angle a a slow-mo I'm sure it exists and I would just love to see it when it happens to see how he's holding it to see if he kind of uh, throws it forward and the spin's going forward or if he throws it like a chest pass because if he throws it like a chest pass then there's no spin um or it could be it could be backspin i don't know this is me just kind of rambling because i don't know i mean there i haven't really seen a good view of that and i would love to yeah i mean i could be wrong who knows uh, just the way it hit off was wild i was gonna i haven't seen that either but i did love how he took it so fast like he just didn't wait he didn't dribble it and like look at the basket at all just immediately throwing it and that's not uncommon for missed shots but i'm definitely a fan of that just to 
try and take the opponent off guard if that's possible in a situation like that. Absolutely. The whole thing with him practicing with John Shire. My question, and I don't understand how others didn't ask, was he the only one practicing it? Like, is it just like nobody else practices but Trey? I know he's going to shoot more free throws, but at the same time, like – Cassius might shoot a free throw. Wendell might shoot a free. Like, are they not are they not practicing it? These are the random questions which like people don't ask, and I'm just like, like I can't, it, I don't know. Was Trey just alone in the gym with John Shire practicing yeah. that, and nobody else? Like, I want to know that. Like, do you feel like that would be interesting to know, or it's just like who cares? Yeah, for sure. Like like you said, it feels the way they described it. It feels like it was just John Shire and Trey Jones just sitting after a. After a practice, just talking, and all of a sudden they're like, hey, let's practice missed free throws. But, yeah, I don't yeah, know. That, I, yeah, it's great for them, but at the same time, hopefully anyone else is also doing it as well, and I, I didn't hear anybody was, so who knows. Here's something. On Trey's regulation free throw miss, the clock actually started when the ball was halfway through the air after hitting the rim, and it shouldn't start till a player touches the ball. So uh, credit goes to uh, Brett Strelo for pointing that out. Yeah, so it wasn't like – it didn't start as soon as it hit the rim. I mean, it shouldn't. And it didn't start when Trey caught it. It was like almost like the middle when it was in the air. So he got even less time than it should have been. Another thing, Vern kind of stands a little bit to the right on the line. Trey, I hadn't noticed. I'm going to actually have to take a look because I can't be sure, but he stood a bit off center to the right. And that's, uh, that's definitely noticeable because uh, guess where the ball went? Off to the right. Yeah, sure. I remember when they said they talked about Trey and Trey practicing it. They they said that was kind of or Trey. I think it was in the post game interview or something that he said he that Shire told him to, to do it from a step to the right just to bounce the ball off to the side. And one one thing that really stood out is he did like I think the mass mass majority of guys if they're gonna throw it at the rim. They're going to, I would say most of them probably leave early and try to get it as it bounces off the rim. Because usually when it bounces off the rim, it goes straight forward or it kind of goes down. So most people are, it depends if the ref calls on it. Most of them are committing lane violations, just hoping the ref doesn't call it and trying to get in the lane too early. Trey did not move. If anything, he, uh, like, real quick reaction, he was ready for the ball to go exactly where it did. So that's what almost leads me to believe, not that I didn't before, that like, yeah, that dude knew what he was doing. And it's kind of crazy that that can happen. And yet, like, he missed it. He missed the second shot, which could have won the game in OT. So as good as these guys are, if you think they can hit anywhere they want, they can shoot anywhere they want, at the same time, he still missed the second one in OT. So you never know, but it's still pretty remarkable that he was able to uh, do what he did in regulation. Under, underrated in overtime, Wendell Moore, he tipped out Trey's uh, unintentionally missed free throw, which could have won it for Duke. And, I mean, the fact that he uh, made it after kind of Trey's air ball, that obviously gets the attention and rightfully deserved. But the fact that he tipped it out, I mean, that that was just as impressive. Otherwise, the game's over. I mean, there's so many ways in which the game could have been over. Yeah, and eventually he does. He catches it, puts it in at the buzzer. Somehow overtaking uh, my guy Nate James, who I love to say my, uh, my, my my summer camp coach at the Stu Vetter Basketball Academy. I made a, a half court shot with him as my coach. Won some shoes. That that is my coach. Nobody else's coach but mine. Nate James. He won it against Maryland in the 2001 ACC tournament final with a putback. 
I would say Wendell's, even though it wasn't the uh, ACC tournament final. I mean, ACC tournament final, huge. But number one, it was against Carolina. And number two, kind of as you spoke to before, there was 1.3 seconds left on Nate James' shot. So Maryland did get a chance, which they kind of, they had to heave it up. But still, it's just not the same as like a buzzer beater. There is nothing in basketball like a buzzer beater. Wendell, Wendell wins that one. But uh, shout out to my, my guy, Nate James. All right, it's time to get into it. Some of these stats are unreal. Uh, 7-0 run uh, over 16 seconds to win. Down 13, 428 left. Duke led for a total of a minute and 47 out of 45 minutes. Wild. Trey went on a personal 13-5 run over a minute 49. So from, 49, from 48 seconds left in regulation to 3 minutes and 59 seconds left in OT. That's wild. And, and uh, he also uh, scored 15 straight Duke points. And here's my favorite. Th- this is something that, like, I don't know. I just have a tough – like, I saw it. I know what happened. I know why it happened. And at the same time, I still have a tough time comprehending. Overtime lasts five minutes, five total minutes. So over three minutes and 31 seconds, UNC went on an 11-to-1 run over three minutes and 31 seconds, and they lost. And I know why they did, and I know how they did, but that still doesn't make sense to me. To go on an 11-1 run over three minutes and 31 seconds. So Duke has less than a minute and a half, and they lost. That's something. I mean, I mean, I talked about before how Wake, uh, when Duke lost in double OT, how they started out uh, the second overtime, Wake went on a 12-1 run, and it was it. You're done. I mean, that's how, tw- that's how it goes when teams go on a run like that in overtime. You don't have time to come back. And uh, obviously Duke's good. I mean, I don't need to explain how it happened because, uh, yeah, with Trey's early buckets and then the late ones, I mean, it all makes sense statistically. But in my head, I still have a tough time figuring that one out. So um, minimum win probability. Duke had a 2.3% chance to win when they were down 79 to 70 with two minutes and six seconds left. 2.3%. Not much. I mentioned the two insane plays. Wendell didn't just make the shot in the final play. He tipped out. I think that just deserves another mention. All right, so first of all, with UNC, they choked. There's no other way to put it. I'm not saying Duke didn't deserve to win, but UNC choked. Let, let me ask you, Andrew, can you remember, did Duke ever foul UNC on purpose? Um, uh, yeah, there were, uh, yeah, I mean, there was. They did? When? Or I, like I mean, it, I may be wrong, but, but I, I feel like I've watched it. I don't feel like they fouled UNC on purpose ever. And for to be down that much and that short amount of time left, hey, maybe maybe I could be missing something. But I don't remember any foul. And that shows just how remarkable it is, where there was no in, – not, not intentional because intentional would be a flagrant, but there was no foul on purpose. Any fouls? Were because it came within the shot, or just kind of Duke players trying to make a play. But never once was it just kind of foul to extend the game, and that's what you typically see in these types of games. So I was also what I was going to add. One play that was weird to me was the the Stanley foul. I don't know if you remember that. I think it was when Duke was down three in regulation, but it was a foul. It was on UNC's half of the court. That was a weird. That was a weird foul. I don't know. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'll definitely go into the uh, specific plays. But uh, first, let's just go through the free throws. I, I've heard some people compare it to, like, Stephen F. Austin. Well, Duke Duke missed a bunch of free throws versus Stephen F. Austin. 
Nah, it's it's not at all comparable. Um, all right, so against Stephen F. Austin, Duke was in the final 13 minutes and 30 seconds. And that includes the five minutes of overtime. Duke was three of five from, from the free throw line. So their misses all occurred earlier. It was no, none of it was so. Uh, and actually, the last free throws Duke shot was uh, Trey. I think he made a, a pair with like 58 seconds left. It was nothing like it. All right, you, you go through it. Six four, uh, 649, Brooks misses, uh, and UNC is up 10. Then you go three and three minutes and 40 seconds left. Brooks goes 0 for 2. Still, UNC is up 11. All right, so here's where it gets to the absolute choke job. So you got uh, 111. Cole Anthony goes 1 for 2. Still, UNC is up 7. 56 seconds left. Playtech, 0 for 2. UNC is up 5. Leaky Black with 46, 47 seconds left, one for two. UNC still up three. Then finally you got Cole uh, going two for two with 21 seconds left, so that puts uh, UNC up three, then up four. And then you got Playtech going one for two again to put UNC up three, and that's setting it up for uh, the regulation excitement. OT, you got you got Backcut uh, one for two. That's actually the only one, the only time to the line with uh, UNC where they were actually down. And that was, uh, yeah, that was when actually Wendell kind of, I think it was like scratched him in the eye. So that actually should have been uh, Brooks. So either way, I mean, um, but uh, yeah, Miller won, won for two with 232 left, UNC up one. And then finishes off with uh, Cole Anthony, two of two. And that put UNC up four and then up five with 20 seconds left. So those not named Cole Anthony, with under seven minutes left in regulation, they went two for nine and four of 13, including overtime after a scorching two, two for four performance in overtime. Yeah, that's a choke job. I mean, and especially just all the, all the misses under a minute. I mean, you got, uh, even, you got Playtech 0 for two, Black 1 for two. Uh, you got Playtech 1 for, I mean, just, ugh. It, it, it was brutal to watch. I'll, I'll be honest. It was pretty brutal. So I wouldn't compare it to Stephen F. Olsen. And again, I'm not taking anything away from Duke. But, man, they I, I think it showed just how much. I mean, other factors occurred as well. But also, they missed Brandon Robinson a ton. I mean, that's that's probably their best shooter. They don't have a lot of shooters this year, and he's one. I mean, yeah, you look at the guys shooting. I mean, Playtech, Backcott. I mean, I mean, Miller. Like, what is Miller even doing in there? I, I mean, they just... They've had a rough year with injuries and Garrison Brooks. I mean, basically Anthony's the only one who you would ever feel comfortable with shooting free throws. So, yeah, those aren't guys you'd feel too comfortable with at the line. All right, so uh, other big factors. It's interesting just to see uh, Cash just sat the last 10 minutes of Boston College for Goldwire, and Vern fouled out with four minutes uh, and 16 seconds left in regulation of UNC. Cash just fouled out halfway through overtime. So it's interesting how Duke actually got the win against Boston College without one of their uh, top scores, and they ended up getting the win against uh, UNC, finishing out with, without two of their top scores, with uh, AOC replacing him, O'Connell replacing him as the only Duke sub in overtime. You got uh, 11 starting lineups. That's kind of crazy. If Andrew, if you had to guess, how many starting lineups would you say 2015 Duke used? Probably less than five. I'd say, like, Four? They used three. 
and one of them was the Clemson game, which uh, Jaleel Okafor missed. So oh. when they made the switch from uh, moving um, Winslow to the four, Matt Jones to the three, and Emil being the sixth man, like that was it. That was like the only time they actually switched the lineup, and that was just Matt Jones in, Emil out. Like that was it. Like, they, I mean, it kind of makes you appreciate how remarkably healthy that team was. Because at the same time, it's, it's not like every everything's being moved around so much this season. It's just when Trey misses two games so like that, you need to uh, replace Trey for those two games. Then Stanley missed a game. Um, you've got uh, Wendell Moore. He's out for a bit. Vern's actually the only one. He started every single game. But, uh, yeah, I mean, stuff happens, really. The only, the only kind of continuously moving part, I would say, is uh, – the four and maybe at times the three but with uh, Hurden and, and uh, those guys. But, I mean, 11 lineups, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. And, I mean, Duke used 24 lineups total in this game in the UNC. That's a lot. 24 original starting lineups. I'm not starting lineups. 24 lineups. That's, that's a lot. And it just shows how in the beginning of the season, how gaining chemistry with each other it was just so big. So now they can, they're used to it. They can play with anyone. Everyone has chemistry with each other. That didn't, that possibly didn't exist all the time early on. Now you can just kind of pop guys in and out. And that's why you look at the last two games against North Carolina and against Florida state. And you see the minutes, how spread out they are. That's what I imagined at the beginning of the year. And then when that didn't happen really at, at the start, when Kay was kind of stick with like one lineup in the second half, maybe a six man, I was like, what are you doing? You're, you're, you have all these options. You have all this versatility. And you, especially with this team, I think a lot of people mistake their depth for guys who can do anything. They have depth, but they have a lot of guys who kind of, they, they specialize in a role. And that's what makes Wendell Moore so special. He's kind of the Swiss army knife. He can do so much, but a lot of other guys, I think they're really good in a role, but that's why you kind of have to kind of work, work, work. It's like a science experiment. You kind of have to work it with every single game. There's no one set thing that's going to work. I mean, Trey's going to be in there. He's always going to be in there. But everything else, I mean, I I even w- would say like Cassius a couple games ago, but then you see like Cassius versus Boston College, he was out for Goldwire. And you just never, it's just about finding what works. And that's why it's so nice to see these minutes, how spread out they are. And that is a good thing. And you can work it against different teams to your strength to attack their weaknesses. In terms of UNC, is there anything that – have you watched them much at all this season? Um, I think I watched them really early on in the season, but not, not a ton, to be honest. Was there anything you thought they looked like they were doing much better? Anything specifically they were doing much better than typically? Are you saying they did much better against Duke than typically? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, their shooting from the mid-range stood out. I don't remember from watching early on that that was something they did consistently, but I could be wrong on that. You're absolutely right on that, and that, that's a good call because that is something that very much stood out. But first, let me also say transition. There's 353 teams in, in Division I. UNC came into the game averaging uh, .797 points per possession in transition. That ranks number 352 out of 353. So, not good. Not good. Second to last, obviously not good. 
and then against Duke, they uh, they were great. Not not only did they get out and transition a lot. Um, hold on, I got I got to find this uh, real quick in terms of finding the exact stat for uh, UNC in transition. Real quick, let's see here. Okay, uh, 22 possessions, 30 points, nine to 15 field goals. That's wild. So what that tells me. I think a lot of people are just going to say, oh, Duke wasn't getting back. Duke had no heart. I think it's just you can't you, – you can't even like – I don't know. You can't practice for that type of urgency that a team like North Carolina is going to play with when their season's pretty much – it's done. I mean, they lost to Boston College before, and they, they shit the bed. Uh, they came after. They got run by Wake uh, the game after Duke. I mean, they – literally put everything they had. I'm not saying they don't try other games. but And that's why I always make sure to mention the word urgency. Because I think urgency, that's that's what they were playing with. And that's it's so tough to match because, I mean, there, there's only really two things that, so, that you can do, which it's almost impossible just to uh, describe to an opponent in terms of how you can match it. One is urgency and the other is desperation. And urgency can be matched. Desperation, I mean, you can't be desperate unless you're desperate. It's that simple. The way Carolina was playing, just how hard they were playing, and just the plays there, it was just above and beyond. And Duke, their, their main strength this season is their defense. And Carolina was just making shots that they didn't normally make. Okay, so the mid-range, as you said, so typically teams maybe shoot like 15 mid-range. I mean, usually like somewhere around 10 to 20 mid-range shots a game. Anyone who uh, does analytics will tell you the mid-range shot, you want as few and far between as possible. You want it at the rim or you want a three-pointer. That's the way the game's going. And that's, that's how you get Kevin Durant angry on Twitter because he'll say like, oh, the mid-range is not dead. Everyone can do it. Yeah, if you're Kevin Durant, yes, you can, actually, you can absolutely do it. Because congratulations, you're Kevin Durant. And uh, guess what? Kawhi Leonard, he's also great at it. I understand what they mean when they uh, when, when certain guys kind of take offense to uh, the whole mid-range, don't shoot them thing. Because, I mean, yeah, if you, the more you practice, the better you're going to get. But at the same time, the stats are what they are. And, uh, yeah, there's a human element involved. So that if, they, if, you, if guys practice them more, instead of kind of being slaves to the analytics movement, maybe... Yeah, maybe it wouldn't be quite as uh, – I mean, it's really – if you've seen, like, shot charts for the NBA, it's nuts in terms of just how the mid-range has almost completely disappeared. And that's just – I mean, and it funnels down through college, through high school. It's it's all uh, – yeah, I mean, it's copycat. So the mid-range bottom line, it's uh, – if you're going to give up a shot, that's probably the best shot to give up. And uh, there's only three teams coming into North Carolina – who uh, shot more? Who shot 20 or more, or more than 20? There's Georgia State who shot seven of 26, Miami who shot uh, seven of 22. That was Miami at Duke, and uh, Syracuse seven of 25. So the three teams that shot more, they also shot even though for mid range, I guess around like 25 to 30 percent. That's kind of average. I was gonna say horrible, but that might actually be average, which goes to show. That's probably why you want to give up that if you're going to give anything. I mean, it reminded me of when Duke played Virginia in the first game. Do you remember uh, the game? Um, uh, Duke won 72 to 70. 
Do you remember anything about that Duke Virginia game? The I first. Had, uh, game? I believe that was at uh, Virginia. I think it was like on Valentine's Day. Was that the game that we just shot the lights out? I can't. From well, deep, I mean, I... it depends what you mean from where. I mean, because the second game that was when Duke had the crazy outlier from deep, which okay. <laughs> the first one. They, I mean, I, that's why I, I said, like, even, like, after each game, like, I kind of felt bad for Virginia because Duke had, like, two of the most ridiculous outliers for what they were as a team. I mean, Virginia played them perfectly. So, I mean, you can't prepare for Duke go, being unconscious from three the second game. And the first game, I mean, Duke was 2 of 14 from three. Okay, so R.J. Barrett was 9 of 10 from mid-range, and Zion was 5 of 6. Whoa. Like, it was like... <laughs> I, I mean, as and Cam was one of two, Alex O'Connell was 0 of one. That was all the matter. They were 15 of 19. So wow. they were they, like I use the word judicious a lot. They were judicious. They were amazing because that's what Virginia wants you to do. They, I mean, with their pack line, and nobody beats Virginia off the dribble. Nobody beats that pack line, and that's what that's what Zion and uh, RJ kept doing. I mean. RJ had some horrific games from mid-range for Duke. He's had some horrific mid-range games for the Knicks. You can't you can't expect to repeat that. It was just wild. 15 for 19 mid-range. That's that's not going to be repeated. So I, that's why I said I kind of I enjoyed the Duke victory. At the same time, I was kind of like, damn, Virginia. Like Tony Bennett must be like, what the hell? So, uh, but anyways, if I put the over under, I'm just gonna say uh, 25 over or under for North Carolina mid-range against Duke. 25 made? No, uh, shot. Uh, I'd say over 25 taken. 30. Over or under? Uh, I'd say I'd say under. They shot 40. Whoa. 40 mid-range shots against Duke. I said there are only three games where Duke even gave up more than 20. Teams don't shoot that. North Carolina was 20 for 40. And if you subtract Armando Backout's one for six, they were 19 of 34 from mid-range. That's stupid. That's something you do not prepare for. I mean, you got you got Christian Keeling just going unconscious, hitting like mid-range from everywhere. Yeah, Garrison Brooks hitting mid-range from everywhere. It's like, what are you supposed to do? And you know what? At least it's twos. You're not giving up threes because you, because Duke, their three-point defense, man. If they're when they do give up a little bit higher percentages than usual. It's it, it, they still don't allow teams to shoot much. I talked about that in the last pod in terms of I think it's like uh, Louisville and uh, I think it was Clemson. I mean, there are a couple teams that did shoot a higher percentage, but they didn't shoot much at all. So it didn't really affect it too much. Plus, I think a lot of those came in the first half. Yeah, North, North Carolina, they, they didn't make much. Um, I can't remember exactly what their uh, stats were um, from three. Do you have that in front of you? Um, North Carolina from three. Let's see. We can pull it up yeah. real quick. Yeah, I can find it real quick. All right. In the first half, North Carolina was one of six. In the second half, North Carolina was two of five for a total of three of 12. So, yeah, they, they weren't they weren't shooting much, and they weren't making much. I mean, that's Duke for you. Crazy yeah. three-point rate, and, uh, I mean, Duke's three-point defense is just absurd this season. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they were relying on mid-range. So they were just making shots that teams, I don't, don't want to say shouldn't, in my opinion, but statistically, they shouldn't be taking all those all those shots. They are low percentages, and they were making them. Yeah, that's one thing. One thing I, I mean, it's obviously just speculation, but how, how much different does that game go if the first five mid-range shots, if they miss all of them? Like, 
all of a sudden they might stop taking them and might be entirely different. Yeah, and that's something which uh, I really do feel like the human element was involved in terms of this isn't a rip UNC fans. This isn't a rip them. I know there's so many good ones. I mean, I remember, like I mentioned being at the uh, at the Dean Dome for the game when Carolina was trash and seeing that game with like nobody there and the crowd went mild and everything. But I, d- I do feel like they don't get nearly enough. They don't get enthusiastic enough. They get the crowds, but that's why they get the kind of the jokes of the wine and cheese crowd. They were amazing against Duke. All of yeah. them. Fantastic crowd, and it it just reminded me so much of that 1995 game with Kate, with Cable shot because it was not a good Duke team, and that crowd. It's I mean that's kind of the old I want to say American because uh, across the world, yeah, everyone loves to root for the underdog. But when the team's down, they need your support. I mean, it's just really cool to see a crowd get behind a team like that, and I really felt like it boosted UNC in ways that you would think wouldn't be able to be shown statistically, but something as weird as like a mid-range thing, maybe it helped. And then you wouldn't think like it has nothing to do with like any sort of um, strategic or anything like that element. It's just, I don't know, crazy things can happen. You know what? It's Duke Carolina. I mean, that's why there was nothing about their records that made me believe going into this game that it would be a, a, a walkover. Like I never thought this, this game would be automatic. Because it's Duke Carolina, and it's, it's crazy because I'm, I, I study the game. I, I look over all the specifics, but you know what? Duke Carolina is different. It just is, and there's not – it's just you don't find much like it across any sport. And, I, I mean, with the, the distance, I mean, that just makes it extra special with the fact that a lot of these guys know each other, extra special. I mean, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of anything that could relate. The closest thing I can maybe – think of in maybe a different sport maybe Auburn Alabama in football I don't I don't know I don't quite know exactly the culture but I know it's crazy intense you just never know what's going to happen I know there have been some crazy upsets there and I know it's rare it's it's because you can't it's not like something you can compare to um like bait like a lot like uh, Yankees Red Sox where they play each other like 70 million times a year it's it's like unless it's the playoffs unless there's really just so much on the line it's you just can't replicate that. I mean, I think the thing that makes Duke UNC different is the fact that in a regular season game, it just means everything to people. And everyone knows it's going to be good because right now with kind of – I'm not ripping anyone. Just with the ADD culture, people really need something to be on the line. You need everything to matter so much. You need to be like if a team doesn't win, they're going to really suffer the consequences. And that's why – like. Baseball, they're probably going to go to less games. NBA, they're probably going to go to less games because with so much to distract you, there needs to be more involved besides like, I know you can like bet on everything now, so I'm sure that entertains some people. But at the same time, like this is a game where Carolina, they're out of it. And it was just, it was everything. And again, a season like this season where it's been under, you don't have the stars. You don't have the star teams. And you, but you have this game. I mean, that's something that outside of cough, cough, eighty-two fifties, those uh, random ones. I mean, it's it. Jay Billis is right. It delivers. It always delivers, and it's wild. It's just wild. So I was just gonna add, like when you, when you mentioned the win probability for Duke being like under three percent, it feels like whoever's whoever's down in the UNC Duke game that 
whatever algorithm they use to just add 5% to whoever's down. I mean, there's just always that extra chance in the UNC Duke game that something crazy is going to happen. Yeah, and another thing that's wild is kind of how it happens at Chapel Hill a lot when Duke comes back. That That's the thing, which is like, Bamos get off on just shutting up the crowd because it's happened a bunch there. You would think, like, oh, when you're at home, that's going to be when, like, the like you really kind of work off the crowd. Duke? I mean, they do it, Cameron. I'm not saying they don't, but there have been some crazy performances at North Carolina. There really have. Yeah, and I'll say last, or that, that UNC game, I mean, that was, like, peak Duke being the villains, right? I mean, UNC's having this awful season. They've they're playing at home. I mean, if you're an outsider watching that game, you got to want UNC to win that game. And, I mean, yeah, Duke, Duke's always a villain to an extent, but that was an extreme, extreme level of that. Yeah, I mean, no matter what you think of the teams, I mean, the way Carolina is this year, I mean, they've had tons of injuries, and they still are, re- are much more talented than the average team. I'm not saying they're not. I can't stand it when people like right now, there's a lot of people who keep trying to make Duke into this like scrappy, like mid-major type. And I'm just like, are you serious? They are absolutely 100% one of the, one of the five most talented teams in the country. If not the one of the most three uh, most talented teams and like, stop trying to make Duke out to be what they're not. Like they are a hell of, just cause they don't have Zion. Is that really it or something? Like, it's just stupid. But anyway, um, Carolina, I mean, they obviously have Cole Anthony, and Backot was a top twenty recruit, and I and I'm the I'm the person who says like stop being slaves to the uh, I shouldn't use that word it's a bad word um stop stop like obsessing over recruiting rankings it's random you never know I mean there are when it gets to the top there is a more of a reason to kind of take that more for what it is but at the same time UNC I mean they they that's their only two top fifty guys. So while they they are more talented, much more talented than the average, it's still not what you would think from a typical UNC team. And guess what? That's what happens when they lose. They lost a ton last year. I mean, uh, Luke May, he what was it, like his 70th year at, at Carolina last year? You got Cam Johnson. You got, uh, I mean, Kobe White, he's the stud. I mean, they got so, ma- they got so many guys. And, and, and then they're just kind of empty. The same thing's happened with Virginia. Virginia, I mean, with their with their system, like it's I don't know how even they're as good as they are losing so many. I thought without Ty Jerome, I was like, I don't know how they're gonna do anything. He was the one guy I thought they needed to stay. But Carolina with the injuries, because Garrison Brooks, I mean, I read I read articles and heard interviews with him talking about how he spent hours with guys last season after just working on screens where they like their screen set. That's the type of dude Garrison Brooks is. He makes other guys better. You look at the stats and the on-off stuff, you see it. Guys are better when they're playing with Garrison Brooks on UNC, but you can't get that chemistry when guys are just, you never know who's playing. I mean, Roy, it is, it is tough to watch his post-game interviews this season. It is brutal. It is like a funeral after each one. And, um, but, yeah, I mean, he said, like, he doesn't even know who's playing. And I'm not saying anyone should feel bad for North Carolina. But I think it, it does make them easier to root for as the underdog from a general purpose. I do not care who hates Duke and, like, oh, everyone hates Duke. And when Duke when Duke loses, everyone, that like, America wins. I don't care about any of that. Like, I love basketball. That's all, that's all I care about. So, all right, back to the, the, uh, the good stuff. So, 
it's interesting because uh, the Duke site lists uh, before the game 12 games to track clutch free throw shooting, which they say is under five minutes when the final margin is 15 or less. I don't know how they came up with 15 or less because 15 does not seem like a close game in my opinion. It seems extreme. I don't even know if I would say 10. I mean, like a team coming back from 10 down, like it, I don't know. But either way, um, so uh, with the, the way they have it, uh, under five minutes when the final margin 15 or less, heading into North Carolina, Trey was 28 of 30, which was helped by 10 of 10 accused. Cassius was 6 of 7. And uh, Wendell and Matthew Hurt, they were three of four each. So, uh, yeah, I guess it made sense if Trey is the only one practicing the shots off the rim, considering how much more he shoots them uh, when, yeah. when Duke's in a close game. Still, you never know, but he did. So in UNC, uh, combination, regula- uh, the end of regulation and overtime in that situation they gave, Trey was four of six, three of four in regulation, one of two in overtime, and obviously one of the shots he missed was on purpose. Wendell was four of six, three of four in regulation, one of uh, two in overtime, and Cassius was two of two. So I guess it kind of makes sense. Um, then another thing I kind of I think is interesting, um, I kept track before of the fact that Duke, there's so many guys who's gonna, you never know who's going to have the big scoring game. So there are now 12 guys who have put up 15 plus halves. And the reason why I chose 15 is because obviously, yeah, that uh, you multiply it by two, 30 points. So I, I would kind of want to see, like, who can have those big scoring efforts, which would put them on pace for 30 points. And not many actually ended up with 30 points. Just, just And it goes to show you never know who's going to step up consistently in terms of both halves or whether who needs to. So you got uh, – real quick, I'll go down. 21, Vern, first half, Cal. 20, Cassius, second half, Georgetown. 20, Hurt, first half, BC. Eight, uh, 18, Vern, first half, UNC. Uh, 18, Hurt, first half, Winthrop. 17, Trey, first half, Georgia State. 17, Baker, second half, versus Wofford. 16, Vern, first half, Georgetown. 16, Cassius, first half, at Miami. uh, 15, Cassius, first half, at UNC. 15, Vern, first half, at Michigan State. Uh, 15, Hurt, first half, versus Miami. How many many, um, times do you think guys ended up with over 26 points in a game. It could be got from the list I gave of 12, or it could be from anyone else. Um, over 26? Over 26. How many times do you think that's happened? I'd say three. That's exactly right. So uh, you got two consecutive games. First, you got Trey against uh, Georgia State, 31. You got uh, Vern versus Cal, very much helped by uh, 21. He ended up with 31. So both of them got 31. And then Trey, who, uh, who got 28 against UNC. So it just goes to show it's not like they couldn't keep up the scoring. It's just it gets spread around. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing. I'm not saying that, like, oh, they couldn't keep it going. A couple of uh, other aspects. Carolina, when it's almost like the way they were playing – to get the lead and the way they were playing that, that worked out so well, it's almost the same thing. It kind of bit them on the rear end when it came down to it because, I mean, they were constantly go, go, go. And they wouldn't wait um, to shoot in the shot clock. But then at the end of the games, I mean, they were taking some bad shots. I mean, I guess Cole Anthony, 
Like he's a guy that you can just say, do what you want, because he's the one guy in Carolina that kind of get his whenever. But there were some other plays that it's just it di- it didn't make sense. They should have used clock more. And it just it made it too easy for Duke. When I was saying like Duke didn't need to foul, I mean they made it easier for Duke. All right, another thing, Stanley, he had a great rise and fire from the from the post in actual half court, followed by Trey. He had a steal and a bucket to start the second half. That was huge. Cashes went off screen at 16:40. Then Trey pick and roll to Javin in half court. Besides those, there was really no half court for Duke. And even some of those weren't half court. I mean, Trey, when I said his steal and bucket, it was outside of the paint. But, like, all right, here's, like, Duke didn't actually really do anything well in half court. Like, they were just getting quick shots. I mean, if when UNC actually defended, Duke wasn't good. So it's not like I think some think of these lineups that Duke used in terms of like, oh, they, they were able to spread North Carolina out. They, they didn't, no, I mean, they were just kind of – North Carolina would just let them go by. Kind of just – I don't know. They didn't want to foul at times. So it made it easier. And Duke got momentum going to the rim. Duke didn't have to really work for their shots. I mean, there was, there was a couple of nice plays in transition. I mean, AOC hit a bomb at 12 minutes left. Um I'll tell you what, here, here's the one. Goldwire actually took Leaky, Bra- Leaky Black off the dribble. That, that was like one of the most unexpected things I saw. And Leaky Black, someone, uh, I compare him a lot to Theo Pinson. And with his offense, I would say, yeah, there's definitely similarities. Defensively, not so much. Uh, Leaky Black, maybe he can get better. But right now, he, he, he just let guys get by him way too easily. But I mean, but again, besides that, they're just, they, they really weren't, making Duke work. And then on defense, Duke had, Duke had a, they adjusted, they played a 2-3 zone for a couple possessions. That was nice. They used the uh, the 2-2-1 uh, press, which I beg them to use more, which they never do. I have no idea why, which worked really well, as it always does. But, yeah, I, I mean, they, they were trying different things, and credit to Kay for that. I mean, North Carolina, when, when you're playing so out of your mind, when you're I mean, I, th- I thought, like, the, the plays that made me believe, like, oh, wow, this just isn't Duke's day. Do you remember the last play of the half for uh, Carolina? Uh, no, I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Okay, so uh, Playtech, he pump fix Cassius, goes right by Cassius, and does this crazy, like, a- acrobatic uh, layup and beats uh, beats Wendell Moore at the rim. And I'm just like, I do remember this, that. Is, this is Playtech. Like, are you kidding me? So, yeah, I mean, that's when I was like, wow, it is it is just not Duke's day. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, they stuck with it. I mean, and that's something which Duke, they don't freak out. You don't see them going crazy. I mean, in the NCAA tournament, there's been times back in the day, I mean, they would just start chucking threes, but I think that's kind of their uh, MO anyway around, around that period, especially the Reddick period. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought they, they found a way – and by find a way, I mean just kind of try to beat the defense before the defense gets set. Because Duke's offense wasn't good. Their half-court offense wasn't good. And their half-court offense wasn't good versus Florida State, which I'll talk about. But you know what? what is constantly good about Duke? It's their defense. So even against a team like North Carolina, that's just hitting wild shots. Duke at least didn't get run off the court. Because this they were playing against a team that was just hitting everything. 
except for three, except threes. They weren't hitting threes, but they were hitting a lot else and free throws, <laughs> definitely free throws. Why do you think that, or did you think that Carolina stopped going inside too early, especially when Duke went more small? I mean, they had Garrison Brooks making plays in the post. Then they just stopped. Did you think they should have kept going to him? Yeah, I mean, Garrison Brooks has been their most consistent guy this year. I mean, Cole Anthony's great, but Garrison Brooks is always a guy you rely on. And I think down the stretch of a game, you want the ball in his hands just because, I don't know, he's been their, their kind of leader this year. Yeah, I don't know about the ball in his hands because that could mean it's – it's in his hands long enough to get fouled and he can't make free throws. But at least in terms of being able, I knew what you meant. And uh, it makes sense what you were saying in terms of in the post, able to just make a quick move. I I mean, that's, that's definitely um, a guy with experience. There's nobody, there's nobody else. North Carolina had played one second against Duke before this season. He's the only one. And that experience matters. So uh, here's another thing. I'm trying to remember what game, because I know Trey, he he made a quick steal out of halftime against Stephen F. Austin in the second half, and then he missed both free throws. It was kind of an ominous feeling uh, after kind of getting the excitement up. And he made he made, he made a steal right out of uh, the uh, halftime against North Carolina, and then did it again in overtime. There's also another game I can't remember which, but he made a steal right out of uh, it might have been Georgetown. I think it was Georgetown right out of halftime. That's something that Trey just has. He kind of has a feel for the moment on defense. And that's that's real, That's just, I don't know if cool is the right word. It's just like, because I don't know how you do that uh, on defense, but it's wild how he has, I mean, right at halftime in order to get Duke kind of that momentum, get him that confidence. That's huge. That's absolutely huge. Kind of, I was talking about kind of an ominous feeling like when play tech at the end of the half, 14 minutes of the second half, there was a play in North Carolina at Duke, they tipped the ball like five times. There's loose ball. It was going everywhere. You're thinking like, oh, Duke's going to get the turnover. It's going to be great. And then it just ended up in UNC's hands for the layup. I mean, there were certain things like that, which is just it kind of, I don't know, karma or what, or just kind of luck. But it just didn't seem like Duke's day. And just the fact they were able to uh, keep going anyway. I mean, credit to them. So Duke, 11-0 and this season when scoring 85-plus. So... That's a good sign. Obviously, with their offense, you never quite know when that's going to happen. So hopefully their defense can kind of create some of those. I would say it's a bit under the radar how Trey wasn't worn down by not only carrying the load on offense, but also the fact that he really doesn't face a lot of guys who continuously go at him. And that's what Cole Anthony did. I would say Cole Anthony, he was actually really unselfish in the first half. I thought he played with himself. I mean, he went at Trey in the second half, though, so... I mean, there were a couple plays. I think uh, Goldwire guarded Cole Anthony on a few plays. Uh, I think that was just more based on switches. But Trey, he stuck with him. So to have that energy at the end of the game. And, I mean, this is kind of like a game for Trey where I think uh, I was talking to Ray. And uh, I think Ray even, like, tweeted it. He said uh, he compared it to Jay Williams, who – do you remember uh, how Jay did against uh, Maryland in that 2001 uh, quote-unquote miracle minute before – the Miracle Minute? I I have no idea. I mean, I was I was pretty young when that happened, so I don't think I watched that game live for sure. Ah, you got you got to watch all the replays though. That's what's fun. Not, but anyways, uh, Steve Steve Blake, he had kind of the reputation as the uh, Jay Williams stopper, and he he's 
He started, I think Jay, he, he shot, he was shooting like 20%. He had like, I think he had 10 turnovers, like four assists. He was just awful. And then I uh, kind of, he, I don't want to say purposely, but he somehow managed to trip over Steve Blake's foot. And uh, that's when Steve Blake fouled out. And then the miracle minute started. So the, the Jay Williams stopper couldn't stop him. And nobody remembers how bad Jay was before it all happened. All anybody remembers that, and nobody remembers that Steve Blake, that's what really kind of got it going. So Trey, he didn't have a great game. I mean, and when, when you consider like his uh, his right elbow jumper to send it into overtime, like how many shots did he make even outside of, uh, I mean, maybe like he made a couple like right outside the paint, but there weren't many from any sort of distance. Duke wasn't making anything from any sort of distance. There was actually a nice, if you remember, the Chris Jenkins, uh, the uh, <laughs> funny enough, um, the uh, or ironic enough, the play, the three-pointer he hit as the trailer for Villanova to beat North Carolina for the national championship in um, 2016. O'Connell actually, that was that was the exact play where Trey kind of dropped it off for him. That was a really impressive play. I mean, there was there was some great action going in uh, transition, and uh, I, I mean, you got O'Connell. Credit to him. I mean, this is a guy. He was one for eleven from deep in his previous seven games before going two for two against Carolina. Stepped up, stepped up, and that, and that's huge. That is absolutely huge. To get to kind of go a little bit more individual, Joey Baker. I would say he's he's really doing a great job on most everything in basketball, except for some very important things. Uh, one, shooting. Number two, boxing out. And number three, number three, I'm not sure um, how much he can improve, at least, especially right now, hopefully in the future a lot more. He doesn't really come off screens real tight, um, kind of the hips. Like, he just, he needs to work on that. I also don't think Duke runs a lot of screens for him. Um, but at the same time, he's doing a lot of great things for Duke, which doesn't involve shooting, which is a great sign because it means he's not one-dimensional. I mean, if, if you uh, – do you remember a couple of assists he had in the first half where it almost acted like a backdoor, um, but it wouldn't even be all the way to the free-throw line. It would kind of be to the paint where uh, Vern would just like kind of fake like he's going to the free-throw line and then go back the other way, and Baker would just – kind of hit him in stride, and Baker had a nice entry over the top. Baker, his passing was great. He had a great kind of stop and uh, dish and transition one time. His dribbling, it's it's pretty impressive, to, to be honest. It's not great. I'm not saying it's great, but it just shows that he can still contribute in other ways. And when you look at a lot of these lineup combos and the on-offs, Baker makes guys better, and I still haven't given up on the possibility of him really playing with um, Cassius and Trey and uh, Vern and uh, Wendell Moore. Wendell Moore played a lot at the four. Wendell Moore even played a little bit at the five against uh, North Carolina. And Wendell Moore, I mean, again, that's something like you ever do. Do you ever worry about Wendell Moore um, possibly uh, being overmatched uh, physically if he plays against a big guy? No, I don't really worry about it. I feel pretty comfortable with him in there. He seems. Even if like some guy had an advantage on him, it's it's never gonna be where he just gets utterly dominated. I don't ever worry about that happening. Not at all. And I mean, I love watching because Wendell guarding on ball. I think he does need some work, but in terms of off ball help and his anticipation, man, that guy's already close to elite. And then when it just comes to just physicality down low, 
I think that makes him easier because it's just nothing to think about. You just stop your guy, and it kind of – he's bigger than Carewell. I've, I've compared him to Carewell a lot. I mean, just the fact that he almost embraces it. Like, Carewell, he guarded Tim Duncan um, at Duke, which is just wild to even think about. I mean, Wendell, he was really – Trey deservedly gets all the props. Wendell did so much that is going under the radar besides his, uh, his game winner. I mean – a bunch of offensive rebounds, a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of just plays when they're absolutely necessary. Again, the uh, the ball handle, that initiator. I mean, it was huge. It was absolutely huge, and I, I think Javin deserves a lot of credit too because uh, Vern. I mean, I think in the first half they were getting him involved when they could, but in the second half, I mean, he just picked up a bunch of fouls real quick, and it's just that was tough. Did you see him shake hands with Roy um, when he fouled out? Yeah, I did see that. I've heard some people talk about it. What's your initial reaction to it? I mean, I was surprised by it. It's kind of a cool act of sportsmanship. I don't, other than that, I'm not sure how much else to read into it. I mean, obviously there was the time when he was kind of yelling towards UNC's bench, so. That's exactly, well, I, I think, I'm not sure that was UNC's bench. It was at 251 in the first half. He kind of jawed with Roy a bit. And Roy was kind of taken off guard because Roy wasn't, like, talking to him. And I think, Vern, I do think. I agree. I don't know. I'm not there. I didn't read lips. I didn't hear anything. I think it had a lot to do with 251 in the first half. That's what I feel. Because people are like, what is he doing? I, I think it was that. And that's cool. That's cool, though. I'm not saying everyone should do exactly that. But I do think the two aspects were related. Um, Matthew Hurt, how would you feel about his game? Um, I can't really remember a lot of what Matthew did, to be honest. He didn't do much. Um, he played six minutes total. I mean, his four minute, his four fouls in six minutes, it just made him unplayable. It wasn't matchup based. I think yeah. people with her, people talk about her constantly matchup based. I would agree with that. But North Carolina, it wasn't even, he wasn't even able to have a matchup because he was just pick up fouls immediately. I mean, even Kay, when Hurt had three fouls, Kay started him in the second half, really trying to, like, pick him up and give him uh, some motivation, and Hurt picks up a foul immediately. And then at that point, with the motions running high, with a tight game, I don't know if you can kind of put somebody like Hurt in for big minutes or, or vital minutes down the stretch if he hasn't played. He did come in when uh, Trey was trying to miss the free throw because he was a big body. But in terms of, like, legit minutes, it was tough. So he obviously didn't foul out, but at the same time, he was he was tough to put in uh, more. So I don't think that was – well, there are many games where Hurt will be matchup-based. I think uh, North Carolina was not one of them. Javin, I thought that he – like, there will be – I mean, with Javin and, and Goldwire, that's what I'll talk – I mean, what they, what they did versus FSU – was just alpha glue guy stuff. Probably more than more than more than glue guys. Just really good games in general. I don't want to limit what they did. Javin was up and down um, against uh, UNC. He had some good moments. He also had some uh, his uh, his missed layup where he kind of just kind of if you remember that the first time he kind of just jumped up and I don't know. It looked like he had like he was like electrocuted or something. Which is I, I don't know. I love Javin and the, the plays like that they they warm my heart. Anyway, but uh, then you, then you, oh, Joey Baker missed dunk. That was impressive. Oh, you know, that was the that thing was... about the thing about Baker and O'Connell that I don't I don't know how 
they just never lose confidence. Like if you if you remember like when uh, when when Trey when he got his own rebound at uh, at the end of regulation. If you look up, O'Connell is raising his arms like O'Connell wants to be the guy to shoot that. Like before Trey even gets complete control, O'Connell's already like that. I'm like that dude. He just I I can't like I would love to be as confident about anything as somehow O'Connell and Baker remain about you, about basketball. Did you see the video of O'Connell like waving goodbye to the UNC fans after? Yeah, he he got he got the white dude rhythm right there, so that that was impressive. But uh, yeah, O'Connell he is uh, he's not afraid to express himself. I'll say that. Uh, passing out of the post, o five on passes out of the post. That like these guys they gotta start hitting shots for Vern. He's getting better. He's getting a lot better at passing out of the post and just passing in general. Hit the shots, man. I mean, at the same time, I think there needs to be a lot more action created, which is a lot to talk about with FSU. But I think Vern is really, really improving drastically in his passing out of the post. And, I mean, if you could just, like, swing it, like, it just, it doesn't have to be the first pass. It can be, like, a hockey assist. I don't know. Like, the ball needs to move. And I think Vern's doing a good job. And I think, I don't know. I mean, FSU, there'll be more to talk about with this. But, like, when Trey's not, oh, when, when he kind of takes a break to play off ball, and you see Goldwire as the initiator or Cassius as the initiator. I mean, I'll say this. I'll repeat it against Florida State. But, like, the ball, like the offense just moves better because it has to. There needs to be something created. K will just trust Trey to do whatever. kind of, And then Cassius, sometimes he'll just be left to ISO. But against Florida State, I mean, I hate to kind of skip to it. But if you remember, it was kind of a pass over the top to, uh, to Hurt at the right elbow. There were some horns and there was, it was like new action created out of it. Hurt actually just straight missed um, where he could have kind of swung it to, or not swung, but dumped it in to uh, Vern down low who had sealed it. He had a good post pen. But Hurt at the same time, he made a really good aggressive move. And that's just something which it put Hurt in a good position to do that. When uh, when um, Jordan Goldwire, when, he's, when he initiates... Different things happen. There's different movement going on all around, and I just, I just wonder, like, if you, if you did this stuff with Trey, I don't know. It almost seems like the offense is just more bland, and that's why it's begin, it's beginning to be interesting when you look. And it hasn't happened a lot. And I'm not trying to make too big a deal out of uh, on-offs because it's not like the NBA when it's always against top-notch talent and on-offs. It's a lot better and and easier to use them. But, I mean, Trey without Vern and Vern without Trey, they don't play much without each other. But when they do, it almost seems easier for both of them because it seems more natural. And so I think a lot of the time people are just thinking, oh, it's all on Vern. He clogs up the lane. And especially versus FSU, which is a defense where they want you to uh, go to the center and then they'll kind of collapse on you. That didn't work for Vern. He was not, he was not a good matchup. But... I do think they could use Vern in different ways. I And it, I don't know. I just think uh, Kay could help them help each other almost because I feel like they, they each play a little more free when they don't, when they're not playing with each other. And I'm not saying they shouldn't play with each other or even take more breaks. That they both need, they both should be in, but I do feel that it's just worth noticing and worth trying to improve and, turn, and uh, kind of allow Duke to be more creative on offense. 
So, yeah. I mean, uh, another thing, Baker. Yeah, great defense. I, I, it was a great defense. And I just think he's doing a lot to get playing time even when he's not hitting. And when he does hit, man, that will just take it to a new level. And, and I just think he's he's still going to be key for Duke. I love O'Connell's. Uh, I, I love his confidence, and he'll still he'll he'll be huge. If I'm, I don't know if I want to say I'm wrong on this or not want to, but because uh, I never was down on Goldwire, I was just always worried that too much would be put on his shoulders. Kind of thinking back to hearkening back to uh, Tyler Thornton, I said Goldwire is a more talented Tyler Thornton. I do think uh, the Northwest Missouri State game traumatized me because what existed with uh, Goldwire at the end of that game and his defense was some of the worst stuff I've ever seen in my life. And it's just like, I don't know. I, th- I think it did give me nightmares. But even if I had full belief, I think he is just, what he's done is far beyond what I could have imagined. And credit to him. I mean, Florida State, there a lot more specifics in terms of that. But how have you felt about uh, Goldwire and what he's provided for Duke recently and just the whole season? I mean, he's been, he's been fantastic. He's just been, he's been pretty rock steady. And then in a game like FSU when he just has, has a very good game offensively. And, um, that's, that's more than you can even really ask for. And then defensively, he's, he's just rock solid. Um, the UNC game he did, he did actually switch on to Kalanthi for a little bit. Um, Coach K mentioned that being kind of an important thing in the press conference. But, yeah, that allowed Trey Jones to kind of catch his breath for a minute. But, yeah, he's he's been he's been a very vital part of the season for Duke. Yeah, it kind of it sucks to say, but at the same time, I think I know he kind of understands what's going on. Jack White, he does, he does so much well for Duke. But, like, when you've got a guy like Wendell Moore, I mean, he's just bottom line – as long as Wendell knows what's going on, because what Jack White has, what he provides, what he can provide an experience, it's still vital. I think it matters a lot more at the beginning of the year, especially with defense when you got a lot of young guys who need talking and aren't quite sure where to where to be. But at this point, he's st- I, I still think he can provide vital minutes. But man, uh, Wendell Moore, if he if he's gonna if he's gonna do what I. Uh, what I, what, I, what I bitched and moaned and cried about all the way back in uh, November that Wendell had to be played at the four, or at least uh, because of, because I'm a genius and I demanded it. Joke. But I just I, – I don't know how Jack White would play at least uh, – I don't know. I, I just think that kind of replaces him as unfortunate. I mean, do you think they could ever play together? Um, I mean, it doesn't feel like it on paper, but I've felt like that about certain lineups throughout this year, and it ends up happening. Like, I never thought I'd see Jack White, Joey Baker, and Alex O'Connell on the floor at once, so you never know, I guess. Hey, they even had, uh, Matt, they had Matthew Hurt, Alex O'Connell, and Joey Baker on the floor all at the same time. They had the White American crew, and yep. oof, the defensive efficiency for that period of time, I'm not even going to mention it. Like, because, I mean, I was worried when they came out. I'm like, oh, my God, the defense is just going to go down the tubes. And then I looked at the stats and like, yep, that is exactly what happened. I did like that. That was pretty obvious there. So I wouldn't expect that uh, little experiment to last uh, too long. But you know what? 
That's a good. I love how you mentioned that because I think uh, O'Connell and Baker, as long as you get, uh, as long as you know how the defense is going to go, on offense, I think just they keep the ball moving because those are guys that are going to move. They are going to work within the offense. And uh, Baker, he had a great pass to O'Connell cutting in on the uh, right baseline for that short uh, mid-range jumper. Beautiful play. That's some beautiful basketball right there. And those are guys that the ball is going to move when they're in there. It's not just kind of in Trey's hands, just kind of waiting. So, yeah, I mean, I think they could could, uh, form a great little duo there. But, again, you need to worry about – how the defense is going to go. Um, and, and I mean, it was interesting because Javin and Vern, they actually played together a bit. And then they, they Duke used uh, some without any big. I think the thing is on defense, if the other team doesn't have a guy who can really make a lot of plays down low, like Florida State, I mean, I've said, I don't know if you were listening to this earlier. I mean, I said a lot early on this year. Cassius and Trey, I mean, that's the best defensive backcourt Duke's ever had under K. And Goldwire adds another element to that. So guys just, I mean, if there's not going to be a big guy who can just kind of score in the post at will, I mean, it can work to Duke's advantage to to go small. I mean, because, uh, and that'll also allow space. And I want Vern on there. I want, I want it, but there are going to be certain matchups where it'll work to the benefit. And... I, I just think it could provide a different element, especially at various times in, in certain games. I'm not saying it has to be like Virginia Tech and like, oh, bench Vern for the rest of the game. But I do think that could be a strategy. Last thing I'll say, Matthew Hurt on defense. I mean, it is it, it is an adventure. Watching how teams, everything they do when he's in there, like literally everything they do is designed to either go right at Hurt or to get the, sw- the switch they want on Hurt to attack Hurt. Like literally, they're into everything about every team's offense is designed to going at hurt. And I don't know. I kind of feel bad for him, which is why, hey, it's great that he made the big play, which had some. Uh, I'll, I'll say since since you're since you're about to head out, and I'll talk a little more about Florida State. Do you, you say whatever you want is a bad kind of way to introduce it or sort of interview or question or anything. Just talk talk about Florida State, however you want. Talk about it as the worst possible way to ever transition to somebody so i know exactly how bad i sound but go ahead talk about florida state and how how you saw it any comments you had how certain players anything you'd like i mean the defense florida state defense was very good um goldwire like i said he was i mean overall i think the defense in that game was pretty good it was a low scoring game i guess i need to i'm not sure about the efficiency stats but and then goldwire was just Goldwire was great. I mean, five for five. What do you have? Thirteen points, right? Mm-hmm. And then the defense he always offers that was that was phenomenal. Um, Carey didn't play a lot, which was interesting to me. Um, yeah, like you said, it, it, they did when he gets the ball, they did tend to kind of swarm in on him. But I still, I initially would have liked to see him play a little more, but. Maybe that's just me. You might completely disagree with that. Um, yeah, I mean that's kind of my that's kind of my initial reaction to that FSU game. Sorry, that was kind of a not that was kind of a messy way to approach that, but yeah. 
no messier than how I transitioned it to you, but I mean, I think that the key is how with this Duke team, when you rely on defense, when defense is your identity, blue collar defense, getting down, just stopping people, and it all starts on the perimeter, you can have a game where the offense is just shit. And that's how it was, bottom line. Sorry for the language, whatever, but like Duke's offense was crap. Yeah. And the gold wire, the shots he hit, that just made him more important. Javin, everything he did made him more important on offense and defense. Javin was just insanely good. Duke's offense sucked. And their defense was – I mean, they, there was like three plays where they uh, didn't switch as well as I would have hoped. And you know what? That's, that's nitpicking because you know, stuff happens in games. So for me to kind of pick out three random plays is just stupid unfair considering how good their freaking defense – I mean, that's a game when you're just destined to have a letdown against a really good team, also against a team which it, it, I should say they're better – I mean, they – especially from the free throw line and they, they didn't shoot as well as they usually do. And, uh, see, I don't, I don't know. I mean, usually you would, you would think they would hit more shots, but Duke, they defend the jumper as well as anyone in the country. And they're the number one team in defense at defending the dribbled, uh, the dribble jumper. They're, they're among the top, like 20 in the defending the pick and roll when it's about guys creating off the dribble. Yeah. There's going to be times that uh, a guy like Trent Forrest can get through, but at the same time, Duke, they're just locking him down. And when you got a guy like uh, Vassell, who I am sky high, he was my pick for preseason most improved player. I, th- I did think Florida State should have gone to him more. I don't think they went to him nearly enough. But at the same time, Duke's defense was absurd. And uh, Javin making huge plays down the stretch reminded me a lot of Georgia Tech. He, he was yeah. terrific there. But it's not just about down the stretch. It's what he does throughout the game that people just – they might not notice because he might miss a weird-looking shot against uh, UNC, and everyone on, on Twitter will be like, oh, he sucks because they don't understand what's actually happening in basketball. But Javin has been fantastic. Yeah, I'll and, say uh, – I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say with Javin, I mean, I'm assuming you have. I don't know if any of the listeners have, but it's it's worth just spending some defensive possession just watching him, his body language – just him calling out every single thing that's going on. It's, I mean, he's the quarterback of the defense at certain times. And it's, it's pretty cool to watch just how good his communication is. That's, that's why the same exact thing happened with Marquise Bolden that nobody quite appreciated what he provided for Duke. Like when uh, Bagley and Carter were there because he didn't, he, he didn't immediately stand out like a number one draft pick or anything, Can but we- dunk every single thing that came within sight like the two guys around him yeah but like it's defense like there's a reason duke had to go to zone which didn't fit mark if marquise bolden if it was like a normal lineup without two bigs marquise bolden could have held down the fort and done really well marquise bolden man he was fantastic and the thing with playing Young bigs is they just they're not used to it. They don't understand the talking, the switching, the the rotating everything, and that's what makes a guy like Javin so key with what you're saying. The way he talks, the way he communicates, even now because Jack White, it might be like he was a little more vital, even though he's still vital. He was a little more vital earlier in the year. I, I think like Javin, he stays vital. I I just hope like Javin, he's got to find a way to stay on the court in uh, in the NCAA tournament or ACC tournament, everything. Because when guys start to lock up, when they start feeling the pressure, 
that's when things can happen. And we've know we've seen when Duke struggles, when it, a lot of times it's when there's some uh, playmaking bigs, like against a Clemson, against against uh, Stephen F. Austin. I mean, that's the teams that really can affect them. So that's why Javin becomes so much more vital. And a guy like Wendell Moore now that he's he's in there and healthy, man, he is that Swiss Army knife. That can help out. There won't be so much kind of a no man's land with the big to big action because Wendell can come over and snipe it. I think. Is there anything else you want to add uh, about uh, North Carolina that you saw? Kind of emotions you felt. How you feel that game stacks up in the grand scheme of things. How maybe it affects the way you think of Duke as, uh, or even Florida State, since you're not going to be talking about that yet. To go. Is there anything you want to take away from those two games, or that you did? Um, I mean, the UNC game, that's obviously an all-time classic. Um, not only just, yeah, that's just not only for the UNC rivalry, but just as far as Duke games I've seen ever, that's that's phenomenal. And just the way they fought back was, it was great to see. Obviously helped a lot by some, some definite struggles from UNC down the stretch, but still they capitalized. They did, they did what they could and they ended up coming out on top. Um, and then, like you said, FSU, just the defense being absolutely locked down. If you can have, if you can have any more offense that, that looks like a, like a really solid Final Four contender. If you can, if you can add even five more points to that, that's a, that's an absolutely fantastic game. I mean, they still, the crazy thing is that, I mean, it feels like they're, where they're really winding down. They still haven't even played NC State. So, uh, I think NC State, everyone always worries. NC State, they, uh, I think their record is like five and three in in uh, the past twenty years against Duke in like January, but then after that, I think Duke hasn't lost to them. So I don't know if that means anything. Hey, sometimes stats are just stats. I'm more than willing to admit that because I don't know what that could be based on. But both games will be uh, later on, so we'll see how that works. They still got uh, Virginia, so who knows how that will go. But either way, it was big, and I'll, I'll continue on with uh, some uh, Florida, from a little more specific Florida State thoughts, not too much more. Give a little more um, in terms of uh, how I saw things and just about specific players and certain strategies, especially attacking that defense. But, uh, Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. And, uh, yeah, th- thanks for giving me some of your time for to talk about a really epic Duke-UNC game, which the last thing I'll say about that is, there's, there's, it's very rare these days that like there's specific shots. I mean, when a guy, when somebody makes like a, a game-winning shot or amazing shot, I mean, like kids or I mean even grown men, women, uh, just like anyone, they'll go out and they'll practice it. They'll try, they'll try to see it. That's kind of the uh, the way like they did Leitner against Kentucky. I think like this is going to, this is like the first time like I think people are going to go out and try to practice with trading. They're going to try to practice missing. And that's, I find that remarkable. And uh, Trey has taught people to appreciate how to fail to succeed. So, Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, there will be no transition to uh, Florida State talk. I might do a little more on Florida State along with talking about Notre Dame, maybe even some Duke NBA stuff this weekend. If you want to join me on a pod on the episode, hit me up, DukeBasketballCorner at Gmail. Would love to have you. 
And, uh, yeah, I mean, just talk about Duke. That's the way these episodes are going to come out fast and furious. As long as, as long as you join me, I'm happy to do it. Hope everyone enjoyed the Duke, North Carolina deep dive on a game that will go down in history. A season that really needed a game like this. I mean, for the ACC, for National College Basketball in general, Jay Bills put it best. This game always delivers. For the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast, I'm Adam Pomero. I will be talking to you soon.